Sunshine Coast Council acknowledges the Sunshine Coast country where this podcast was recorded, home of the Kabi Kabi peoples and Jinnabara peoples, the traditional custodians whose lands and waters we all now share. We wish to pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the important role First Nations people continue to play within the Sunshine Coast community. This podcast deals with topics some listeners may find distressing. If you need support, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Hi, I'm Caroline Hutchinson and welcome to the Sunshine Coast Council's Get Ready podcast. Throughout the series, we'll examine a variety of disasters and ways of creating a culture of disaster preparedness, response and resilience within our community. In this episode, we're looking at emotional well-being during and after a disaster. During a disaster, you will most likely experience a range of emotions, including shock, fear, helplessness, regret, anger, frustration and disappointment. It can be very disruptive and stressful and the recovery can take time, sometimes months or even years. Colin Sivlingham is the Queensland Emergency Services Manager for Red Cross. My role in the Red Cross role in Queensland is that immediate response or that early recovery because the emotional impact starts at day zero. So the moment people leave their homes in Hari or they go to an evacuation centre, that's where the recovery starts because the moment that's where the trauma kicks in. And my role here in Queensland is to make sure volunteers are equipped and trained and can be right on the onset of a disaster just when it actually happens. So really in that early response, um, that takes up most of our time and that's where we do most of our work. Colin and his team see a whole range of emotions in evacuation centres. Normally when people come into our evacuation centre space and often when we try to register people, because a big part of our job in Red Cross is to register people so that loved ones would be looking for them and so that they're in a safe space. Uh, When we do register people in that early days when they come into our environment, uh, into an evacuation center, we often see levels of trauma because often they would leave their homes in Ari or they did not have a disaster plan. And often there's some of the basic things they don't have with them. And that creates a whole lot of psychosocial trauma for them because they don't have the insurance documents, they didn't have a plan, they, they have to leave the home in a hurry. Sometimes they have to leave the pets behind. Um, and they're concerned about the house. They don't know they have insurance issues. And the belongings uh, may get destroyed in a fire, for example. So people are very traumatic. And we see this every time when they come into an evacuation center. It's not knowing uh, what's happening to the property or the belongings or not what's happening to where the loved ones are. So that's a very traumatic experience, and we've seen this in the Sunshine Coast. Every time we work in an evacuation center, we've seen this in other parts of the country. People's homes may be safe, but the one is that you're not sure what's going to happen. You're not sure about when the roads, when it is safe, when the roads are opened, when it is safe for you to get back at home. And uh, that uncertainty can be very uh, traumatizing. So even if your home is safe, you may not have access to your home. The road closures or the authorities may um, see it not safe for you to go back. So you may be for a long time in the evacuation center. You may be in a long time staying with family and friends. 
and by thinking about that suddenly, the sudden disruption in your life and planning for that would help you recover much better. Preparation plays a key role in your emotional resilience to a disaster. It's really important for people to prepare for an emergency before it happens. It's often too late during an event or during a disaster when there's a fire or there's a flood, for example, for you to think about uh, what I need to take with me. Uh, It's too late there and you're already in a heightened level of stress Um, and often you can't, you're not thinking clearly. So we've been doing this for a long time and uh, being as prepared as possible can make an emergency less stressful. It gives you more control, it reduces the impact on you and your family. And what we're doing in the cross is encouraging people to think about what they might need to take when they have to flee. You can access our Ready Plan Guide, which is on our website, and you can find links to these resources and a lot more on our website. So it's redcross.org.au forward slash prepare, and it gives you a whole lot of tips on how to prepare for an event. There's a, there's a Get Prepared app that we have, and there's a checklist that you can go through to make an emergency plan. Um, and we've seen this. We've seen in communities often when communities come into our care, into Red Cross care, the impacts of not being prepared for a disaster. And we've seen those that actually are prepared a lot more resilient and they have a plan. They know this can actually happen to them. They have the information and they often would support other members of the community. We've seen some very resilient members in members of community in the Sunshine Coast, for example, that would help other members of the community, especially our vulnerable community members. There was an elderly gentleman that came in and he didn't have his medication with him. And and this was really important for him. And he did not know the script. He did not know what medication he was supposed to have. And because he had um, a dementia, we couldn't really help him and couldn't identify uh, how to actually assist him because we had no script. We, he wasn't sure about his name. He couldn't remember his telephone number. And it's somebody that was reasonably okay before the disaster. But when they came into the Red Cross evacuation center, we tried to register him. He could not remember his own telephone number. And he was trying to process this. And this is has huge emotional impact on the individual. Eventually, we managed to support him and assist him. But we've seen that in that scenario, that it was very troublesome for him because it was really, if we didn't get the medication in time for him, and he was a diabetic, that um, there could have been a catastrophe and it would be personally a big impact on him and his family. Um, but being prepared would have avoided that situation. And we need to prepare our families as well, so not just ourselves. Being prepared and developing resilience to a disaster is a team effort. Reach out to your neighbours and get involved in your local community. Um, That will help you better prepare for disasters. The Red Cross also has a number of volunteers who provide psychological first aid to people in a time of crisis. Renee from the Sunshine Coast is one of those volunteers. So I think the biggest part of the work that we do as a volunteer at Red Cross is about helping people that need support. Like quite often when something happens, it's about knowing 
that we, we're there to support them, but also to listen and link them into supports that they may not um, may not have thought of. One of my roles was um, making the psychological first aid calls to people that were in hotel quarantine as part of the COVID-19 response, I guess. So it was, you know, making that connection. And, and sometimes we were the only person or people that spoke to them in, in a day. The COVID response was the longest activation in Red Cross history. At times, there was 30 or 40 people at a time making phone calls. You know, at one point, there was over a 1,000 people in in hotel quarantine in, in Queensland. So it was a significant response. And for the volunteers making the calls, you know, it, it was sometimes 12 hours a day of talking to people that was, you know, quite seriously impacted by their situations and what was going on. So it was a massive, massive effort in terms of providing psychological first aid. Renee's phone calls played a wide variety of roles. In each different discussion, it was whatever the the person needed. So for some, it was just about that connection with others. Others needed a bit more support and we used our psychological first aid training to help them work through, you know, some of the issues or problems that they were were having at a particular point in time. The mood of the people we were calling really did vary day by day. We had some people that had significant crisis, I guess. You know, I can remember one example particularly where, you know, people had travelled to see a loved one that had a terminal illness and, and didn't make it. You know, so the trauma that they were experienced of not only losing a loved one, but also being alone in a hotel that they weren't familiar with, you know, it it created significant trauma for them. The other ones, I guess, and it relates to me personally, you know, is that there was families with young children in very small rooms with limited activities or limited space for young children. And part of, you know, the discussions that we had, you know, as part of Red Cross, we were actually able to advocate to get that person a bigger room, to get some activities and toys for the children and just make their stay just generally a little bit more comfortable than than what it was previously. As the days turn into weeks, the weeks turn into months and the months turn into years after experiencing a disaster, the emotional impact can take its toll. Shona Witten is the Red Cross National Coordinator of the Disaster Recovery and Psychosocial Support Programs. I uh, coordinate our field work after disasters for long-term recovery. So I coordinate our teams that work at a state and and regional level uh, across Australia. And also we look at how do we support people's mental health and wellbeing after disasters through kind of group sessions and uh, training up our volunteers in psychological first aid. So I look at how we kind of develop up that side of our work as well. Disasters have a complex and and, um, multifaceted impacts on our 
mental health and wellbeing. So obviously that it's, they're very stressful experiences. So really uh, the emotional and psychological impacts of disasters are really kind of to do with stress in the main. So we have what we call adrenaline stress and cortisol stress. Adrenaline stress is what kind of gets us through emergency. It's sort of the survival mode, I guess you could say. So it helps us kind of get things done really quickly, helps us focus. Um, it helps us kind of deal with the issue at hand. So you'll see people that are in this kind of like adrenaline mode be really kind of stuck on one topic, um, can get really emotional very quickly if, if the action that they want to take is sort of blocked in any way. So you can people get, see people get really angry and upset. Uh, and then the other side of um, this kind of stress cycle after disasters um, or any kind of long-term stress is kind of more cortisol stress, which kind of helps us endure. It's kind of the endurance mode, kind of helps us keep plodding along when things are really tough. And so neither of these states are particularly healthy for us to be in in the long term. Um, and after disasters, we see people kind of cycle through them because the adrenaline stress mode or the survival mode can be really triggered by anything that we perceive as to be a threat to our sort of well-being or our safety. And that can be in the modern world, you know, an insurance payout not coming through, not getting a grant approved, these kinds of things, a disagreement with neighbours or with council or whatever. So people kind of cycle through this kind of phase of these different stresses and they both have detrimental impacts on our physical health and our psychological wellbeing. So we try and, um, after disasters, talk to people about this process and say, this is kind of what's happening and you can sometimes see the sort of the recognition in people's eyes when you do sessions around stress and disasters, people start to they go, yeah, I really can see that as what I've been living. Um, so a big part of what we do is psychoeducation, so basically talking to people about the psychological impacts of disasters and helping people with some strategies around managing stress. It's very simple, really, the strategies, but it can be hard for people to implement after disasters. So ultimately what sort of the, the banisher of stress, I would say, is pleasure and leisure. So all you have to do is do things that you uh, enjoy doing with people that you enjoy um, being with. And so it doesn't sound that complicated, but for people who you know, are living in temporary accommodation, whose routines have been completely upended, who are concerned about loved ones, who are concerned about their jobs or their livelihoods, are struggling to put food on the table, Taking time for their own stress and well-being can be really, really challenging. Everyone will experience a different emotional journey after a disaster, but for some, the impacts can be long-lasting. This person that I've worked with in the past who um, experienced a, a bushfire, um, something that highlighted a lot for me, the sort of recovery journey, was that he said that, you know, it was sort of about five years after their disaster that, uh, he, they, as a family, they stopped uh, making what he called crisis-based decisions. So he said up until they sort of made a decision to go on, on a family holiday and he said up until that point he realised that every decision they had made as a family had been had, had something to do with the disaster that they'd experienced. And the decision to go on a holiday had nothing to do with the disaster, the impact that it had on rebuilding their house, like it had nothing to do with the disaster and it had taken that decision that they made um, to kind of 
realised that this event had just taken over their lives for the past five years. I think it embodies, in a sense, what people go through in the long term after disasters. Um, you know, we, we often see, oh, it's, you know, we see the flurry phase, you know, when things, choppers are getting brought into communities, VIPs are coming in, media are all there, we see that. Um, and it's the, the hard slog of recovery that we don't see and I think that kind of comment that he made to me about you know he didn't even realize he was in it in a sense um I think often speaks to the speaks a bit in, in a way to the experience of recovery that a lot of it can be also a bit like in a fog um you sort of just put one foot in front of the other for a long time and really life uh, you know, for life to be worth living, you want to have a good quality of life. And often recovery kind of really diminishes that for people because they are just plodding through things um, and not making decisions about what they want out of life, um, to do things as families, to support each other, um, you know, to kind of reach for goals and aspirations that they have. Often, you know, recovery kind of takes that away from people. So, you know, there are things that you can do along the way, certainly, to try and build that in um, to recovery. So we talk a lot about um, how people can try and make time for themselves and their families, how they can try and, you know, create new routines that, um, th that consider what they need to do in their recovery but don't make recovery everything about in their entire life or the disaster doesn't take over life, um, it, you know, because in it does obviously in many in most ways for a very long time but um you know if we can help people um manage the stresses and and kind of get a better quality of life during recovery hopefully it means that people's um experiences of recovery or hopefully it means that the time in which they the disaster um is kind of defining their life is less right so ultimately we want people's recovery journey to be shorter than than you know, five or ten years, but really part of that is what we can do as supports for people, um, but also part of it is how people support themselves and each other as well. To dive into mental wellbeing during and after a disaster a little deeper, I had a chat with Stephanie Donovan. Stephanie is the Senior Mental Health Clinician in Disaster Recovery on the Sunshine Coast. So my role entails building the capacity of the community to respond to disasters. Right, well, that fits in very well with what we're talking about today in this podcast. We've um, got to the stage that we're having the conversation about uh, the emotional well-being of people who've been through disasters like fires or floods. Typically, what are the feelings that people are going to feel after they've been through a disaster? People respond with a diverse range of reactions. So when they're being impacted by the disaster, the predominant feeling is fear and hypervigilance. In the aftermath of a disaster, people will experience a range of things from quite intense emotions, sleeping difficulties. They might notice that they're eating less or more. They may notice that they feel irritable that they find it difficult to concentrate. And all of those things are normal, even though probably no one person will experience them all. They all are normal responses to disaster. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's important to think about how you would normally um, respond to stress. So if you typically get mouth ulcers when you are stressed, 
you're probably going to get mouth ulcers again. Uh, that's interesting. That's what I get when, I, when I'm stressed. So now how long are people likely to feel these sorts of feelings after a disaster? So typically with the acute kind of stress reactions, people will find that those things dissipate within a month. Uh, for some people, it does um, it does continue for some time. And certainly in the more the recovery um, phase of a disaster, some people do find that that can be quite a uh, prolonged and stressful phase and experience other emotions such as feeling disillusioned, angry, sad, and may actually be experiencing a grief reaction. Sure. Now, when people are feeling that post a disaster, is it important that they really express those feelings and they get them out? Because I know some people would worry that that would make them feel weak or like they weren't coping, but is that an important part of the process? It's helpful for some people as long as they have got confidence in being able to regulate their emotions and they feel a sense of self-efficacy around that. If they've got people who are the right um, support not the right, network but around are, that. Are, are actually going to be able to provide them with a the support. Um, if they have a sense of hope um, as opposed to hopelessness. So there, there are actually some individual factors um, that make a person more likely to benefit from expressing their emotions. I would say that it's it's more important to think about or to, to not actually push people. So some people are, don't typically express their emotions or disclose them, their emotions to other people and people express their emotions in different ways and that's really normal. So it's important if I'm trying to be a friend or supportive to someone that I don't try to push them one way or the other. Correct. I just let them feel what they're feeling and, and just try to be supportive around that. Yeah. So I, with the benefit of having somebody else that you trust and that you feel that you perceive is going to be supportive and and be able to make you feel like you're understood and heard and validated is that they can also help you to reframe your thoughts and make sense of the experience. So that can be quite useful for people. However, we know that uh, in the aftermath of a disaster, psychological debriefing, where you go back and rehash the exper- the emotions associated with that event is actually detrimental for people's well-being. So it isn't actually recommended. Oh, that's really interesting, mm. isn't it? So uh, there is, you mentioned before, hope. So coming out of a disaster, the goal is to try and reframe your feelings, move forward and look forward to something good. Yeah, so I think it's one of the things that I think is important to put across is that like the the idea of expressing your emotions being helpful for recovering is actually not accurate. So it's helpful for some, but not others. In fact, for other people, they may find that 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 may actually potentially almost re-traumatise their them, them from the experience. And actually suppressing emotion or being able to regulate your emotions is a really important um, thing, especially if you're like a parent or a caregiver and you need to be able to regulate your emotions to some degree, which is a, a method of doing that is to repress 
your emotions. In, in, in a healthy way. It's in a, a regulation healthy, yeah. of, of your emotion. Absolutely. I, in I order totally to, understand that. Yeah. yeah. And is that a new way of thinking? So we used to think, oh, no, everyone's got to get it out, whereas now we're, we're a bit more attuned to the fact, well, that's not true for everyone. Sometimes people, a regulation of emotion is a healthier way to recover. I wouldn't say it's a new way of thinking. I would just say when you're more aware of the literature, you understand the nuances in that discussion as opposed to like a lay person, it mm. um, may not, they may have a general message around that being helpful, but actually being able to regulate your emotions is really helpful because it, for, if you're a parent or caregiver, it actually helps your young children particularly to be, to actually be resilient to the disaster. And then being able to, having some flexibility in being able to move from having a repressing your emotion and avoiding your emotion and then being able to at the right time and at the right place um, with the right person be able to actually move through your emotions. That's right. Emotional regulation is really, like you say, it's about resilience, isn't it? It's an important message that people express their emotions in different ways. Some people will share their emotions or disclose their emotions to others, whereas other people will choose different methods um, that doesn't necessarily involve that. And that's that's really normal and it's important to to not pressure people into one particular way of expressing emotions. It is normal for people to feel like they don't actually feel a lot at that point in time, to feel quite emotionally numb, disorientated in disbelief. Uh, avoiding emotion or emotional avoidance just after the disaster might actually be protective for some people, particularly if it helps them to regulate their emotions and be able to do some of the practical things that might be required at that point in time. Avoidance is a problem is or starts to become a problem if you rely on that strategy for on a continuous basis and for a prolonged period of time. All right, so we've talked about the fact that not everyone is going to grieve or feel emotion in the same way around a disaster. What, what are the red flags? What should people look for to, that would indicate they need more help? If you feel like your emotions are out of control to you or you frequently feel like your emotions are out of control, that might be a red flag that you need to seek some more, some support. If you feel like you're experiencing distress uh, that is occurring without actually a, a threat in reality to your well-being. So it might be the anniversary of a fire and you yes. start to feel scared or emotional again and there is actually no threat that day. Yes, yep. So that would be an example of when you might require um, or benefit from some more support. Uh, the other thing too is the with the avoidance um, of experiencing emotions. Avoidance is a problem. If it's getting in the way of you seeking support emotionally or practically because you don't want to actually feel some of the emotions associated with the disaster. So something like I'm avoiding putting in my insurance claim, that would be a worry? Yeah, so that's that would be an instance whereby potentially that, that avoidance is actually becoming a problem for you because it's stopping you from doing those practical things that you need to do. Okay, so if we think we have a red flag, where do we go for help? In the first instance, start with the people around you, so friends and family that might be able to provide you with some support. Uh, also consider reaching out to your trusted GP 
and then think about any uh, online or telephone counselling support options that you can access. So what about for parents after a disaster? What should they be looking for in their children? So the psychological and behavioural responses of children and adolescents may be similar to those seen in adults, but also may include uh, things like regression, diminished academic performance, uh, aggression, self-blame. You may find that they might be, they might seem okay one minute and the next minute they might um, appear quite distressed. And it's it's really important to uh, be responsive to where the child is at emotionally. So then as a parent, you, you notice these things in your child and are worried they're not coping. Who should I reach out to? So similarly with yourself, uh, get in contact with a trusted GP, um, have a look at some other support services out there that provide information around supporting um, children in disasters or supporting children with stress. So how do I enhance my resilience to be better prepared in the event of a disaster? So aside from your phys- looking after yourself physically, thinking about what practices do I already have in place to look after my emotional and psychological wellbeing? So thinking about what are my existing coping strategies and uh, are they how helpful are they for me in being able to combat uh, stress generally? And thinking about making sure that you make time for doing activities that you find fun and enjoyable, having some spontaneity and play in your life is important too. And making sure that you are connecting in with others. We know that people who have a strong support system are more likely to be resilient because they're able to actually lean on some of those relationships and access the practical and emotional support that they may need in uh, the aftermath of a disaster. So start thinking about who about your relationships now and and how you might be able to connect into the to to community and to your supports to build that system to better be better prepared psychologically. So three messages for resilience. Look after yourself physically, look after yourself psychologically, mentally, right? That's your self-care, have some fun and cope, get some good coping strategies and relationships. Yeah. So like those three things. So, yeah, so You've got to have the three. People have diverse emotional reactions in response to a disaster. It's common in the aftermath of a disaster for people to experience strong emotions, sleeping difficulties and anxiety associated with a reduced sense of safety. People may notice themselves feeling irritable, easily distracted and eating less or more. Other people may feel emotionally numb, disoriented and in disbelief. In the months following a disaster, people may feel fatigued, angry, sad and disillusioned. The acute stress reactions will typically dissipate within one month. Most people will recover, but everyone will move through their emotions at different speeds. And sometimes it can feel like you are moving backwards, not forwards. You could be more at risk of having difficulties recovering if you have a history of mental illness and or trauma that is unresolved or if you are a first responder in a disaster. Expressing your emotions doesn't mean you are out of control, weak or having a nervous breakdown. However, you want to feel in control of your emotional expression and people express emotions in different ways. Ideally, you want to express emotion at a time and place that's helpful. 
Sharing your emotions with a supportive person can help you reframe your thoughts and make sense of the experience. Some people, however, may not find this helpful and it's important not to push people to express their emotions. Parents and caregivers of young children need to be conscious of regulating their emotions to support their child's resilience. If your emotions feel out of control, distress is prolonged, or you're relying on strategies to avoid your feelings and it's stopping you from doing things, there are many people you can reach out to, such as people around you, a trusted GP, and online and telephone counselling services. Physically looking after yourself, having coping strategies, doing things you enjoy, connecting with people, and building your support network are great ways to enhance your resilience. To learn more about all types of disasters and emergencies, visit Council's Disaster Hub website, disaster.sunshinecoast.qld.gov.au. It's your one-stop shop to find the latest updates, practical resources, and what to do before, during, and after an emergency. In the next episode of the Sunshine Coast Council's Get Ready podcast, we focus on neighbours. I chat with Timothy Burns from Sunshine Coast Council about the importance of neighbours and how they can help build resilient communities. Sunshine Coast Council's Get Ready podcast is hosted by Caroline Hutchinson. Recording and production by Josh Newth. Didgeridoo played with the acknowledgement of country by Kerry Neal. Special thanks to our guests, Colin Sivlingham, Shona Witten, Renee Humphreys, and Stephanie Donovan.